Welcome to Design Assembly Conversations. In this series, we talk to New Zealand graphic designers, hear their stories, and celebrate their work. I'm Louise, and today I'm talking to Calvin So. Calvin So is the direct creative director and founder of design studio DDMMYY. Dummy also publishes biannual arts and cultural magazine Leroy and regularly participates in international art book fairs. Calvin, hi. Hello. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start with asking you where you've come from. I guess my first introduction to graphic design was when I studied uh, at then called AIT, and it shows how old I am, uh, before it became you know, what it is now, which is AUT. And uh, that was in the mid-90s. Uh, I did a, so I did a bachelor's of graphic design degree, and, and then um, I followed that, that up um, with a master's in fine art from the Elam School of Fine Art, but that was very recent, so that was, uh, I did it in two parts, in 2006 and in 2012. So there was a big gap between when I did my undergraduate and my postgrad. So, um, and actually when I started out in design, um, I didn't actually want to be a graphic designer at all. Um, I actually wanted to do illustration. So I actually majored in illustration. And I think my, my sort of gateway drug into design, um, if you will, was actually through uh, typography and and uh, and drawing letter forms. You know, so um, the the natural um, affinity between you know. Um, having precise line work in illustration sort of translated very easily to thinking about the line weights and, and line work in, in drawing typefaces. So that was actually my my entry point. Did you have any you know strong influences growing up as um, a child that led you in, into you know wanting to study graphic design and illustration? Or? I, th- I think, um, again, I think as, as a kid I drew all the time and, um, and I think you, I sort of got encouraged when I was really young, um, because I think people liked my drawings when I was little. So, but I think going to graphic design as opposed to uh, say going to art school was in part because of you know maybe the the structures, if you like, of a traditional Asian household where maybe art is seen to be too risky as an option. So, but design sort of felt like, at least to my parents, like a safer, more practical outworking of this. Um, tendency towards liking to draw things, you know. Um, so, um, so yeah. So I think the design and the design profession part sort of came later, you know, when really I was more interested in um, in drawing and self expression and and trying to channel influences into visual form, you know. So I remember being one of the earliest memories I have of uh, of feeling inspiration, if you like, in what we understand this sort of mythical lightning bolt kind of inspiration kind of feeling was like when I was like five or four and I remember going to the movies with my dad and then coming home and then felt I just felt compelled to draw what I had seen in the movie you know so for the first like day I just kind of just drew whatever I could remember from that film and then it sort of passed and then it dissipated you know and I stopped drawing that movie again but then it was interesting to then experience it over and over again like and 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 um and you know, I think in hindsight, I feel like oh, that's that's what inspiration must feel like, you know. And and it's interesting to to sort of learn it at such a young age. Um, but I think the maybe the more pivotal uh, inspirations as a designer was, I guess, during the '90s when I was a student, um, because I think coming from this this sort of self-expressive um, 
uh, illustrative mindset, you know, it, it again made it very natural for me to be into designers who use design in that way, you know. So, um, so in the 90s, I liked magazines like Reagan or Emigre. And then, and you know, and and design agencies like Designers Republic or Tomato, um, you know, they were largely American or UK based. You know, I think the UK was very strong with design in in the late nineties, two thousands, and then this sort of followed on in the two thousands with um, other designers that um, operated on a similar philosophy. So people like M in Paris or Obeka, um, and and more recently would be the whole uh, critical design sort of community of designers. You know, who blend design research, critical theory with contemporary practice. Um, and so I'm, I'm really into this whole notion of design for culture, um, but then it's also supplemented, <coughs> excuse me, supplemented by, you know, for me a growing interest in strategic design thinking, uh, which is obviously what I use for my commercial um, client projects. And so that decision to go back and study art at a post grade level, mm-hmm. um, it must have been something that was kind of, you know, you still wanted to explore and, and play with and how has that influenced your um, practice as a designer? I think it started when um, in 2005 um, uh, I was uh, I had a design partnership with uh, a good friend of mine, Simon Ustadai and the practice was called The Wilderness right? and one of the um, uh, projects that we worked on was uh, we had to design all the communication graphics and publications etc for um, the New Zealand artist that was uh, representing New Zealand at the Venice Biennial that year. So, uh, and that was Etal, the um, uh, the collective known as Etal. And so, um, so I it sort of followed a, a a track that I was I was starting to to jump on, and that was really like being curious about um, a, a more critical way of thinking about design and a more conceptual way or a more theoretical way of thinking about design, and um, and because I think uh, there's very little written about uh, design in a theoretical sense, I think it's easier to sort of jump on a different track. So a lot of um, um, critically minded designers often use uh, texts uh, that are like from philosophy or from the art world or from architecture, you know, because we don't have ones that maybe deal, uh, very few that deal with graphic design as a whole. So, um, so yeah, so I think that that path you know, it took me down this different path where then I became a lot more interested in, in art. And, and so I think doing my postgrad and my master's was, was a sort of natural outworking of that, you know, of that curiosity. Um, and, um, and it no doubt, you know, shaped, um, my design practice, you know, um, even in the commercial stuff, you know, because I, I feel like looking back on all, all that time, I feel like there's, um, there's a lot, um, that you can learn from say the history of conceptualism or, or applying the kind of critical thinking that you you uh, experience um, at an art school like Elam um, to a client project because you effectively learn how to deconstruct everything and look at it, you know. So, so an anecdote that I'm quite fond of saying to people sometimes when I talk about this relationship between, say, art school and um, commercial design practice um, is is to look at um, the success of uh, of alt, you know. So, um, here's a Possibly, you know, New Zealand's most successful design studio, and so they're certainly the most awarded. And um, and I, you know, and those guys are great. I know them, and I respect them highly. And they um, and they were started by four art school grads, you know. So um, so then you go, well, how did how did four art school grads um, start what eventually became the 
New Zealand's most rewarded design company, you know. So, and I think I think the answer to that, from my point of view, is that is because of criticality, you know. So, because criticality as a skill, or as a as a mode of thinking or working, um, can be applied to different disciplines. And so, once you um, once you have, once you get used to it, if you will, um, it can be very useful to anyone. I mean, and and you know, and I guess people who are involved in better by design and those. I have no idea what they do, but you know, I, my understanding of it is that they're just simply trying to apply design thinking to not traditionally non-design areas, you know, like business, you know. So, and I think it's a similar kind of mindset. It's like, well, can we apply, you know, criticality design thinking um, to better shape the structures um, uh, that are, are our sort of commercial industries? And you pretty much worked for yourself from the beginning of your career. Was that a conscious decision? Or something that kind of you know just fell into and then followed that pathway. It was, well, I, I I think all I knew at the time was what I didn't like. I didn't know what I necessarily wanted to get into, um, but I didn't like the design profession um, at the time. So you know, so this is like mid to late nineties, and um, and the New Zealand design scene didn't really inspire me, and the work didn't inspire me. So. Um, and again, because I was into this whole mode of like um, self-expressive design, the 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 most visible area that I could see was in the music industry. And so, for the first five years, I just focused mainly on doing design for the music industry. So I did flyers and gig posters, and 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 then when it got seen and people liked them, it eventually evolved into doing album covers. Uh, and then, of course, you know, when the music industry sort of went into cardiac arrest because people started to download a lot of music and and, and, and budgets started to dry up, you know, I couldn't uh, make a living off doing that anymore, um, even though it was a very modest living. Um, <laughs> I, I sort of accidentally fell into, like, the world of packaging when a friend of mine asked me to design the brand and label for a then uh, very young and unknown startup called 42 Below. And this sort of led to... You know, obviously, it has a direct correlation with the stuff I'm doing now. You know, and the stuff I learned from working on a project like Forty Two Below. Um, but also, um, I was self-employed in the uh, through the two thousands as well, and working with, as I mentioned, like my friend Simon on the wilderness, and it sort of extended this whole self-expression, uh, design research, and commercial branding. You know, and then we also dabble with other stuff like event curation, music video direction, art direction. We made objects, and and I think that. I have always chosen to be self-employed because I think I've always wanted to try everything, and I was always worried that if I uh, if I just work in um, I don't know in a, work in a commercial design agency, you know, like it would maybe uh, strengthen like one muscle, or one or two muscles. But I think the the plurality, if you like, or the diversity of working for yourself, you know, you, is you end up exercising kind of all of your muscles um and the the danger of course is end up in you end up being a master of none right you know so you're a generally healthy but not actually very but kind of fit individual um but i think that with hard work and i've worked very very hard at uh, at a lot of different areas i think that you end up having kind of like a stronger uh appreciation of how the creative industries work from a from a big picture perspective, which is why I think when I when I'm creative directing or or doing strategy, like I feel like it's a real advantage um, because I know how things I know how to execute 
so many things, you know, and and so that hands on, like from, starting from the ground up, basically, and then and then doing the and the things now. Um, that hands-on experience is invaluable, you know, in terms of developing a deeper understanding of what what each thing can can do, I suppose. And are you still um, hands-on in the creative and design process within the studio, or are you kind of, you know, within a much more specific area of the um, business now that you have a team working with you? Yeah, I'm still very hands-on, and that's only because you know we have three full-timers, and that includes myself. And obviously, I oversee everything in the capacity of of the creative and a, and a creative director role and a, and a strategic role but and I don't design every project um, but the studio is basically divided up by project or clients and not by role so with the other two designers you know they would also be involved in presenting the ideas and, and meeting with the clients um, and they'll work with me on on the design aspect of it and you know and how much design I do really depends on the project and then occasionally we also have um, so people that we consider part of our family but who who have full-time jobs and if they're available to to sacrifice a weekend or a few nights to work on something we'll gladly have them work on a project especially if it suits their strengths so people like um natasha vermoylan or mina uh, mina pesanen you know like we work with again yeah if it, if it sort of suits what what i feel like they bring that what they add to the team so um so basically the the, the team as i see it is is it's sort of almost organized by their inclinations, you know? So, um, like, I guess, like the actual literal definition of a team, like playing different positions. So, so for example, someone might have an intelligence for illustration or uh, someone else might have a really good eye for photography and understand the nuances of that, whereas uh, someone else in the team might um, might gravitate towards uh, contemporary art or, or fashion, you know? So, um, and often, you know, it's not like one person in each for each thing you know because because we're small so so people have to be very diverse like i i'm very diverse so um so i cross over into multiple fields uh, and so do the rest of the guys but sometimes i just organize them by um by what they i feel that they're naturally good at um as much as i can yeah and is it a conscious decision to to stay a small team yeah i mean that was something that i did during the wilderness like we didn't get much bigger than four people either but but I do remember um being quite sort of um overwhelmed by having to sort of chase these financial targets in order to be able to pay you know we knew where our sort of break-even was every month and so while we were trying to do really interesting work it was you know we had to also focus on like okay we have to make sure we get this much work of paid work in you know and 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 so yeah, and so it was quite stressful. And what it meant was sometimes it left no time to do our own self-initiated work. Um, and so when I uh, finished up with The Wilderness and I started uh, my own thing, um, that's also when I started publishing because it was something that I kind of wanted to do. But there was just no resource or uh, ability to do that. So, yeah, I'm always worried about that, like, of just getting too big. And maybe because my, my administrative skills are terrible. So, you know, maybe if I, I, I kind of work it out uh, from a budgetary standpoint to actually hire a, a kick-ass general manager, then maybe I can think about scaling, you know. But, yeah, at the moment, you know, because we want to, because we do so much um, uh, non-profit work in the studio and we keeping, have to keep that balance, we have to keep it lean and small. So you talk about um, you know getting into publishing. 
and that being um, about doing self-initiated work. So how does um, creating and publishing Leroy influence your studio practice and what's its importance? I was I was always into, you know, interesting books and magazines. Like I mentioned my in the 90s and being influenced by the ray guns and that sort of thing. And, and through our practice, you know, uh, through my practice over the years and its different incarnations, you know, I've, I've had to obviously design publications. But what I realized was that I wasn't content with just doing design and, and that um, I was sort of, not that I was bored, but I, I wanted to have a steer on the, the editorial aspect of it as well. So I wanted to affect the content, not just the form. And 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 being more involved in the art community as I was like in a in a mid to late two thousands, I also found that whenever we got um, publication projects, um, they were they were almost always with uh, established artists in New Zealand. So because they're the ones that are usually uh, more successful with getting funding, uh, and so part of me getting into publishing and and being uh, being my own boss in a way, like starting my own label, is so that I could choose which artists to um, to work with, but also that I, I can sort of alleviate the burden of finding the funding, um, alleviate them from the burden of having to find the funding. So then we, we made it our problem to find the funding. So so we would apply for, for, for grants and, um, and we would also either divert, you know, some of the profit-making projects in the studio towards these non-profit endeavors or, you know, so, so it basically freed, not free, it sort of opened up the possibility of working with a more diverse range of artists than we would have otherwise. Um, and we, and then we sort of then, um, added to this by, by, you know, taking these publications to international art book fairs. So, so in a way, well, we felt like we were kind of creating a bridge between, um, between the New Zealand community and the sort of global, um, art community. Do you find that, you know, working on Leroy influences your commercial practice at all or is it just kind of that, you know, that time out and time to explore and times of ideas? And I think, yeah, it's it's like kind of intrinsically so, you know, um, and I think Leroy allows us uh, and it provides us uh, like an outlet, I guess, you know, provides us an outlet to experiment, to research and to sort of provide a different context for the stuff that we're interested in, which is pretty broad, um, like you know, like some of the some of the art-related projects, etc., um, and some of the ideas we have will will never ever fit a client brief. You know, it will never never fulfill the needs of a client, and that's for a variety of reasons, whether it's stylistic, whether it's conceptual, contextual, etc. But when um, with the publications and with the magazine, we're also able to use it as a playground or a platform. Um, that allows us to engage with like-minded artists, photographers, fashion labels, and designers that we like, you know, both locally and abroad. And so, um, so it really um, allows the studio to be multi-dimensional. Because I feel like it would be really one-sided if we only if the studio only did commercial projects like brand identities and packaging. And if people saw us that way, I feel I, I would feel like we were sort of really misunderstood, you know. So, so I really like, for example. You know, I mean, we, like for example, the recent the recent Best Awards. You know, and and we we felt very surprised because we we did very well at the Best Awards. And one of the conversations I had with a friend of mine at Alt was he said that he was really surprised by our range. You know, so because if you look at what was there, like there's you know really strong, rigid, 
um, modern gridded um, art, you know, art-based identity work, and then fruity, illustrative, cutesy bear, you know, that's funny, and you know, so it's like literally. I sometimes find the best analogy for design as uh, um, the find the best analogies for design in the food industry. So in a way, I sometimes liken our practice to to like a, 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 a kitchen that understands different cuisine, you know? So if, if you understand Asian food and Italian food and you really understand what makes that particular cuisine really great, it also means that you have a really, you have a deep appreciation for food, you know, and, and, and in general, you know, no matter what the, the context. Mm-hmm. So the, the magazine and the publishing um, just simply combines with, you know, the interest in strategy and identities and all sorts of things, you know, as this sort of like kitchen that's always curious and dabbling with making different kinds of food, basically. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, is there one project you've worked on um, to date that stands out to you as being kind of an aha moment or a pivotal moment that's influenced your trajectory? There wasn't really a project that provided me with an aha moment, but I'll talk maybe about the, a moment or a scenario that was really pivotal to me personally as a designer, and um, and it and it was basically when I met uh, one of my design heroes at the time, uh, and this guy called Michael Place, mm-hmm. uh, who now goes by uh, the the moniker Build, or his studio is called Build, and um, and he was and he worked for a really influential UK design company in the late in the nineties called the Designers Republic and um, and in my opinion I think he was possibly the most copied designer in the world at the time and I, I met him around about 1999 or 2000 when he had just left the company to to go on a world tour so um, so him and his wife Nicola decided to do a global trek through you know through Asia and, and basically their last stop was New Zealand and so I, I met him in Auckland and um, and hung out with him for three days, and then uh, and then basically kept in touch by by email. And and one one memorable moment, you know, um, when he was uh, when we were hanging out in Auckland was when we went to the record shop. These, these now extinct things called record shop, just to look at record covers, you know. So because if you remember, I mentioned that I was just doing music industry work at the time, and he and he has done a lot of album covers um, and uh, the ones I really liked at the time so it was so natural that we would like let's go to a record shop and look at record covers and I remember us just sort of picking things up and then just critiquing them and critiquing the design and and because I think he works in a very deep and narrow style so when people who know his work know that he, he likes modernism and he and he's, he's deep in that uh, in a the sort of almost like a kind of British take on Swiss modernism you know and and I would always assume, and a lot of people assume that that also reflects his taste, you know, which it does. But um, what really stuck out for me was when we sort of picked out certain covers that I thought were really bad or really ugly, and and he would praise them and say, "Oh, these are really good." And it took me several years to actually to see what he saw in that moment, um, and because he has such a uh, incredible eye, and that that he he had again is that sort of cuisine analogy where you know he he could appreciate. The, the stuff that's um, that's really good, but that looks nothing like or, or is nothing like his work at all, you know. So, so I feel like through him, I I, I developed a broader sort of 
taste palette, if you will, and, and a more nuanced understanding of aesthetics and design. And then for for the year or two after that, he was almost like a mentor or a kind of creative director figure that I didn't have because I was self-employed. And he would give me feedback on my work via email. And even when I visited, eventually visited London, you know, like he, he was generous enough to put me in a car and drove me, because he's from Leeds, and, we, and, and so we you know, drove me to Leeds to see his family but through Liverpool because he knew that I supported Liverpool the football club so I was like let's go through Liverpool so he was you know super generous and super nice and and it was you know it's his his generosity uh, him and Nicola you know their generosity is quite moving in a way for me because it's like um, you know they had no reason to be nice to this kid in New Zealand that's just really excited about design and that sort of thing um, but they took the time, you know. They obviously don't have the time now because they're very busy with their business. But um, but that generosity, <clears throat> that generosity, I think, is what I feel like. You know, I can do that for other people. You know, like the the few people that we have working in the studio, I go, well, that I can do that for them. You know, and help them to find things that they wouldn't otherwise, which is what Michael did with me. And how do you think you've seen the graphic design industry change in New Zealand over the last twenty years? I think that um, maybe the, the the change in the design industry is also reflective of the the changes in technology. You know, so so if you go back to the mid '90s when I was really interested in getting the latest copy of Raygun magazine or Emigrant magazine, you had one store in Auckland to get to, and that's Magazino, mm. and you would get it from that store, and that was the only, you know. So so the in terms of what we were exposed to uh, and the conversations that we're having about design was extremely insular, you know, and it's the same with every other industry, I guess, you know, and then of course with the internet and, and the way in which everything is super visible now, possibly too visible, um, you know, it undoubtedly has an effect on, on the industry as well. So, um, but I think for me, personally like I, I wasn't because I wasn't interested in design and because I didn't like commercial design in New Zealand like I feel like for, at least from my point of view that there's been a really huge jump in terms of quality you know and um, and I feel like whenever I travel now and 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 look at stuff or even just from looking at stuff I guess online I always feel like the the standard of work in New Zealand is really really high I certainly feel that way about the art that's been made in New Zealand that that if if only the artists would go and see the work that's out in the world and go actually 80% of it is not that great you know and whereas I think in New Zealand 80% of it is really great you know so I think that the 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 median average or mean average you know whatever you want to call it like is skewing really high you know and we always joke about like you know when we go to the Olympics and we go yes but what is the middle count per capita you know like you know it's and it's true I think you know like I think we do punch above our weight for the size that we are so I think maybe we're quite hard on ourselves, um, but I think yeah, it's 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 really really good now. I think the the commercial design work is really good, and you can see then the the quality that that's in the best awards every year. But I think the the areas of weakness in New Zealand are still in the areas that are perhaps less commercial. So in areas like in design research or you know critical thinking and design for culture, and obviously areas that I'm personally very interested in. So, but I feel like. I feel very um, alone in in that, you know. And even in the uh, work that we do with uh, Leroy, etc., I do feel like we're somewhat um, isolated from the design community when we do those things that we we find our natural home, like with with the fashion community or the art community, you know. And you've started a new project this year, um, which is 
called a 360 strategic consultancy. Um, so this is kind of, to me, this is the flip side of you know your art practice mm-hmm. and, and heading into that business and strategy world. And so how does how is this going to work in relation to um, this design studio and where do you see this going? So the the new venture is called New New and um, and so basically I'm partnering up with a, an ex client of mine, if you will. So Jamie Duff, who was one of the founders of Stolen Rum, who is based in New York. You know, after uh, after Stolen got taken over by the Chicago um, Investment Group. Um, it basically freed Jamie and myself up with a bit more time. Um, not that I have a lot of time, but you know, it freed up the time that would have otherwise been devoted to the stolen run-related work. And so um, we decided to create a, a consultancy that basically allows us to sort of bring that collective knowledge and experience that we'd gained from that project. But also, on my side of things, from the work that I've done, so with 42 Below, with Charlie's, etc., and the, the sort of um, successes the financial successes that my clients have had um, there and to bring it to like new businesses and, and go, can we apply design thinking to non-design areas and help them scale appropriately? You know, So there's a transition from going from a New Zealand market to a larger market, even Australia, as we did with Charlie's. And then when you go to the US, you know, it's a whole different um, ball game, you know? And so new, new, how it differs from the design practice, even though the design practice basically plugs into it, you know, it's, but the design practice, uh, is only one cog out of, you know, uh, in this larger machine, you know, and the other cogs might be areas like, um, capital raising, it might be supply chain management, it might be, um, business strategy, business modeling, um, you know, maybe even personnel management, um, you know, because when we're providing, when I'm providing design, um, you know, it's almost like from the very beginning, um, I've been sort of stepping out of my lane uh, as this sort of annoying guy steps out of the lane or trying to swim upstream. So it just comes from these different realizations. So, for example, you know, when I was uh, with the wilderness, I realized very quickly that, hey, the, the better I got at um, account service, the better the work became, you know, because I could, if I made more effort at trying to articulate what it is that we're trying to do and how it fits in with what they're trying to do, they could see, help to see our point of view and that, you know, sort of better things got signed off, if you like, right? And then over time that, that became, well, actually, if I got better at strategy, um, then it then that also makes the work better. And then over time, it's like, actually, if the, if the brand or the product um, from the beginning had a better premise, um, it makes the strategy easier and then it makes the design easier, you know? And so, so with projects like, um, say, Stolen Rum, the fact that I could come up with the name and the brand story and everything, I could sort of set up a premise that I knew that I wanted to play in, you know, and it created a very uh, interesting um, sort of uh, entanglements that allowed, like, creatives to, to, to riff off, you know? So... Um, so it's like, actually, that makes everything easier as well. And then going further upstream, it's like, well, if my clients were better at managing their business, they would have better budgets, and that allowed us to do better design, you know. So, and then when you, when you go up and up and up, and you go, actually, and if our clients had more capital in order to able to scale their business, uh, the work can then be exported into the U.S., and then they can scale, and maybe they'll become millionaires out of it, you know. And so so it's kind of like this logical progression that's seeing how everything connects, you know. And then suddenly the task of 
trying to create interesting graphic design is right at the very end it's like the I don't know the sixth or seventh domino you know so you have to kind of go further upstream to be able to affect that sixth or seventh domino so with new new um, I mean it's still only several months old but what's maybe exciting about it is maybe the scale or scope of what we might be able to do you know so we sort of set the bar high in that our first client um, this year was American Apparel in, in LA you know so it's like whoa you know and and I think a few months before that we thought wouldn't it be crazy to like pitch something to them and you know and and then we actually did it and then we started working with them you know so so the the scale of client the scale of project that we're able to tackle you know like in New York and in Australia you know like they would they just dwarf anything that we would probably work on in New Zealand you know because they basically like they're kind of like the small interesting startups that I work with in New Zealand except really big you know because they're in America yeah. and so do you think you know these new projects are one of the things that you're most excited about heading into the new year or you know there's some other personal projects you're working on or travel plans yeah we we're, we're currently yeah. Um, what I'm most excited about in 2017 is is evolving evolving Leroy um, because we're questioning uh, the, the sort of physical form of a magazine you know so why do we have a physical magazine like what does it do do we need that you know and and one of the areas that we're branching out into I hope if we can actually resource it is in the area of video and and finding a different outlet or a different medium for the expression of the same kind of questions and ideas um but also into like products or yeah sort of products and also like maybe we, we also are thinking about um making uh, a few clothing pieces you know since we since we do dabble in in the fashion world a little bit as to well we'll make sense we'll just start with some simple merchandise or or perhaps provide a, a canvas for the artists that we work with, you know, to put something onto, or you know, I, I'm not sure exactly, but that's new and and interesting, and of course, with all the work with new new, um, you know, in terms of the the new clients that we're working with in the US and Australia, you know, like it, it's really, it's like stepping into, yeah, it's it literally is new new, like I have no idea what to expect. Um, and you talked a little bit about, um, you know, New Zealand in the art scene not potentially knowing how good they actually are um, and so in terms of you know the importance of getting at New Zealand is getting outside of New Zealand and, and travelling how important do you see that being? I think it's super super important and so if you look at the the artists in particular like there are there are lots of we have lots of different types of artists in New Zealand and some of them are not quote unquote cool you know but it doesn't mean that they can't have a really great career doing that kind of work because the world is a really big place you know so so there are some approaches to art for example like say in in Paris or in New York you know I mean Paris and New York are huge places you know so so in Paris for example when I visit I remember my feeling after going to quite a few galleries in Paris was that it was really terrible you know because it was just so commercial and and only one percent of it is really really interesting but at the same time that commerciality means that it's a context that uh, New Zealand artists that who want to work in that type of way 
can go to you know because if you're in New Zealand you're you're limit we have a very insular market so you're limited by the collectors that are in New Zealand you know and then in the secondary markets those collectors are selling to each other so the same like five rich dudes are selling art to each other you know when they get bored of something or whatever you know I'm I'm just I'm just being silly but but you know what I mean right it's insular so so the longevity of I think like the the art scene in, in New Zealand um, even though I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea of, of trickle-down economics when it's talked about in, in, in a sort of election cycle sense, I do think it does work a little bit when you look at, say, dealer galleries that have a broad roster. So the, the more successful, more commercially successful artists within that group no doubt provide the opportunity for the gallery to show younger emerging artists that will never sell work in the first sort of year or two, you know. So, um, so there is a trickle down in that regard, you know, in terms of the uh, provision of opportunity, you know. So I think that if we um, if we uh, were able to connect some of the artists, and I guess not limited to artists, but designers, architects, fashion designers, etc., if we can connect them to a context internationally that best suits what they're good at it really allows them to flourish, you know, because um, there are certain practices that simply will never, ever grow in New Zealand, you know, because of the conditions that are here, you know. It's literally trying to plant a certain tree that will never grow in New Zealand because of the climate. It's like, well, actually, that plant grows better in that country, so you should go there instead, you know. Um, otherwise, you're just going to be pulling your hair out in New Zealand or eventually, you know, doing something else, you know, which is what a lot of people end up doing, you know. So, so that's one reason. I think another reason for traveling, of course, is just to feel like we're part of the world and to be confident in the work that we're doing here. And, and you only know that really when you see stuff. And it's not just from the internet, you know, because the internet is still requires someone to make an effort to put something on the internet, which means they're not going to put really anything shit on the internet. Because like, why would you make an effort doing that, you know? So you have to almost like travel to see all the shit that's out in the world, because you. So it starts to. So you have to start to have a better context for creative outputs, and to go actually, you know, things are really good in, in New Zealand, you know. So um, I mean, those are just two reasons, yeah. but I think it's it's also incredibly fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, you you seem to be a busy person with um, yes. you know the mix of commercial work and um, uh, you know your um, personal projects. But do you take you know, time to kind of disconnect from the world and reconnect to yourself? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I, I kind of have to. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't do it very naturally because I'm very focused. And even in my spare time, I'm like reading, you know, I'm, I'm reading something that's sort of more relevant to work than, say, for myself. Mm. So, but then I think... Like the, like the relationships in my life keep me in check, you know, so my, whether it be my partner or my, um, you know, my friends. And, you know, that helps me to sort of be grounded, I guess, you know. And you remember a simpler time. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have, you know, a very personal design or art practice that's maybe just about process and not output? Yes. I mean, I have so many pages in I guess virtual pages like in in my sort of digital sketchbook um, that occasionally actually mature and become something but they're all like you know this vast digital mini pot plants that are growing you know um, yeah and I and I often do them for myself so um, and and in fact 
I think that that going back to the beginning, almost like the the inclination to use design as a personal um, tool and and for, and to use it for self expression or self discovery, like that has always been there, you know. So even though I'm doing more commercial work, like it, that that side never leaves me. So and if I don't spend uh, you know a few hours a week just tutoring on stuff that's for myself that I find interesting. I don't feel I don't feel right somehow, and and so it, it just yeah, and, and I think the people around me can tell maybe I'm a bit bit more short with them or something or you know like I, I just need that time and and I do take that time so I schedule it like two nights a week you know I I just spend time with myself to do something creative or not you know or I might take myself to a film I don't know <laughs> um, yeah and also collect I, I collect a lot of. Um, uh, so part of that whole traveling thing, you know, I, I collect a lot of sort of weird and uh, weird and wonderful publications or ephemera mm. that I find that um, are usually, you know, not designed by professionals, you know. So it's whether it be like um, weird magazines from from the fifties in Paris or uh, film posters, yeah, like you know, like European film posters that are translated into their own languages that are obviously not done by designers or yeah or in in sydney one time i found in the in the back of an antique store a collection of cricket club newsletter zines so they look like zines in that they're stapled and have typewriter and 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 have hand lettering and all that kind of stuff but it was from like the early 20th century it was was just bundled up and hidden behind an old bookcase and so I just asked them whether I could buy that, you know, and they said, yep, that's fine. And then there was a similar thing in Auckland when I went to the second-hand bookstore and found this thousand-page book, a thousand-page handmade book um, that was, uh, I think it was one person's collection of New Zealand and Australian theatre ephemera. So if you want to look at what theatre-based graphic design was like in the early 20th century, I have this small record of it because this person collected articles and handbills and all that stuff, you know. And I actually had someone scan every single page and so I've got all 1,000 pages as a PDF, mm-hmm. which I've yet to sort of maybe put out in the world properly. But it's, you know, it's an amazing archive, you know. So, But, that, but all, those, all those things I find enriching as far as, um, as, far as my design practice mm-hmm. goes. And finally, is, do you have you know one bit of advice or a top tip that you'd uh, hand out to designers and creators working out there? I would say a top tip. I would say to be brave and to be curious and to um, work hard <laughs> and to um, yeah be hungry. Like I, I, I really like the the young designers that I meet, like the people that work with us. There's, there's this sort of curiosity mm. and um, and that design is not just a job, you know. So um, so I guess it's the top tip. I don't know if it's a top tip. <laughs> is to make design personal for you mm. or find your, bring your subjectivity and bring who you are to your work. Mm. Yeah. Don't just feel like you're doing what the client wants, you know, because that's something I've always rejected from the beginning. Mm. Thanks very much for your time today, Calvin. For more information in relation to this interview, please go to the podcast links and resources on our website, designassembly.org.nz.